it's one more than two to the power of two to the power of something. Hello. Oh, yeah, 16. Yeah. yeah. It says one more than 16. Yeah. That's Josie. And opposite her is Matt Parker. They're talking numbers. And that's basically what this week's Josie and Robin's book shambles is predominantly going to be about. I'll very quickly say before we do get started uh, that winners of the Box of Books, as everyone uh, hopefully knows by now, any of our uh, Patreon supporters, uh, each week we are giving one of them randomly chosen a uh, box of books, which is so far from my shelves, but I think we're going to get some from Josie's as well. And they're proper books and really good things, not the rubbish that a pub buys in a big box to pretend they have books on a wall. Yes. Two to the power of two to the power of something is where you can muck around with the indices of the top one. You can like bring it down. That's um, yeah, yeah. That thing that I I learnt in in A level maths about uh, I I what's the word? So you got all kind of index algorithms. Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. It's so not algorithms though. It's so the index laws are the way you can move around powers when you've got logarithms. more powers going on. Oh, logs. It's logarithms. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Because you you you're basically aren't you with the two? Yeah. Sorry. Just so, give a little bit the, of the mime for how that works is probably quite important. In... Oh yeah, sorry, I was sort of miming the two with the two with the little two above it. Yeah. So it's like um, having a little baby on your shoulders, and then the baby's got a little doll on their shoulders. But those, when you stack powers like that, that's one of the things that people argue about on Facebook when it comes to maths. Because if you had, let's say, two to the power of three to the power of four. Do you do two cubed first and then power of four, or do you do three to the power of four and then two to the power of all of that? And in maths, there's no real agreed order to do it in. And when you watch people arguing on Facebook about can you solve this stupid puzzle, normally there's just some ambiguity in there somewhere where mathematicians go, well, we don't actually care. You should have stated it more precisely. Do you know what I love about this conversation? There's a great film called The Reflecting Skin that I'm sure I've mentioned before. Philip Ridley, uh, who also wrote the screenplay to The Craze and has has written many interesting uh, books and Pitchfork Disney. And the opening of Reflecting Skin has a boy inflating a frog and then with a catapult uh, shooting the inflated frog so it explodes in the face of the actress Lindsay Duncan. And there was some debate over that as an opening scene. And then one person said, do you know what, Philip? Yep, you're right. That is a pretty harsh scene to begin with. And yet, you will lose 50% of the audience. The, the 50% who stay, they're going to fucking love it. I feel a little I bit feel, like I that. Feel like, uh, yeah. It's that like, yeah, barrier to entry. And now we're, now we're away. Because you're in charge of this one, Jason, because you've been doing oh. uh, a maths course. I did do it. I did do it. You did your A level. I did. Yeah. I did quite badly. I remember, I remember you having homework backstage at one of yes. Robin's gigs. Do, do you know what upset Shh, me? Don't tell them that you helped Josie <laughs> with the homework. <laughs> but there was a bit... Well, it was very good for me because when I had my homework, I could have legitimate mathematicians <laughs> helping me, not just like, someone's dead. But um, I, I was looking at um, differential equations. The other day I was looking at some questions and I thought, oh my God, it's only been... Pardon me, it's only been a year and, and a bit. It's, it's gone. And, yeah, I can't... Has it even been a year and a bit? Was it this summer that I finished, or last summer? I, I think it was exams? last... You're getting the time mind oh, of a God. middle-aged person, because that's what it. I do now. Was it last year I went to see Monty Python at the O2, or two years ago? It was seven years ago, was it? Oh, dear. <laughs> the, uh, well, this is... I, I was, the first question I'd like to ask you then, Matt, apart from your own work, obviously, 
for people like uh, Josie, and, and especially for someone like me, who is even further away from, from mathematics, what are the books that you feel are a great return? Because people do see it as a separate language, and people from school days, they have made a decision where they say, oh, I don't have a maths brain. Yeah, so the, there's a few things happening, because if you don't, if you don't use it, you lose it is the kind of expression for oh, yes. maths. Yeah. And you look back at like maths you did yourself like a year ago and you're like, I have no idea what I was like. Obviously past me understood this, but I've, it's gone. And then there's other people who just like they lost at school. They were like, I'm never doing that again. And they walked away and, mm. and that was it. And you're like, well, a lot of books people recommend to get into mathematics assume that you're already quite motivated. And actually, I lump mine into this where it's not that great if unless you approach it going, oh, I really want to do some maths. Whereas there are some books that are great. So you had Alex Balos yeah. on a previous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His Adventures in Numberland is great because he came at it as a journalist and it's a really nice entry point. And he looks at uh, a lot of the culture and everything around mathematics. And uh, Simon Singh's Fermat's Last Theorem. Yes. Which is, it's been a while since it was out, but it's still amazing. And that, if you want an insight into what it's like to be a mathematician without having to do any of the maths, Fermat's Last Theorem is, is highly, highly recommended. And then probably The Man Who Loved Only Numbers. <gasps> I've forgotten the author. Yeah, Edish. that is brilliant. Yeah, it's all, all about Paul Edish. And isn't it someone put, it'll pop up on the screen because uh, Trent... Someone will research that excellent. But that is such a funny... Have you read that one, Josie? I haven't, but I've heard all about it. I think Sarah yeah, Pascoe really is telling me about it. It's the, it's the, the Edish number. Will you explain what an Edish number is? Oh, so an Edish number... So Paul Edish was just this phenomenally prolific... Uh, and serial collaborator of a mathematician. So he would travel, he was from uh, Hungary originally, and he would travel around the world, I think, visiting loads of other mathematicians and just showing up and doing collaborative maths with them. And so he produced a phenomenal amount of mathematics with so many different people. And now mathematicians measure your level of success by your Erdős number, which is like a Bacon number, but it's how many joint publications you are away from Erdős. And so one of my old housemates had an Erdős number of two. And I almost wrote like a math thing with her purely for the sake that would then get me an Erdős number of three, which is pretty good, pretty good credentials. Someone did once um, try to auction off the right to do a paper with them because they had an Erdős number of two. And so you could pay. They did it. They said that was quite tongue in cheek. People in mass got a bit emotional about the whole thing, right? Saying you can get, you can get this, this Erdős number. But he was a man who lived for mathematics. And so what's great about the book, his, his biography, is it's a little bit in between about maths and doing maths. There are enough examples in there. So when I read it, they would state a problem and the answer wouldn't be until like over the page. And so I'd be like, all right, I'm just going to close that book. And then I'm going to have a try myself and then I'm going to pick the book back up again. So if you've got restraint, at, you know, you don't need closure immediately. You can. It's a nice halfway house to start trying some maths. And it's by Paul Hoffman. That's what's just oh, popped Paul on the screen. I would recommend there's a oh, website that anyone who's studying A-level maths or in any way related to anyone studying A-level maths will know, which is Khan Academy. Um, there is a website called Khan Academy. Oh, no, but hang on. What is it actually called? Ah, oh, bollocks. It's called like Exam Solutions. <laughs> Exam Solutions and Khan Academy are the two things that if you're a math student, you rely on more than anything. It's a very gentle man explaining, explaining video by video. Maths, but he's, things happening on the screen. Yes, but you can stop it and try the puzzles out every single time. So it's the same thing where you're like, 
I'll give it a go. You know what? I'm going to pause this. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes, Mr Khan. I'll see you in a couple of minutes. <laughs> Love it. It's not a book, but you read as you do it. See, I've started to really enjoy doing my son's maths homework. And he'll say, uh, we don't. We only have to do one of the questions. We don't have to do both of them. No, we, we don't. Oh. We have to. We had the, the other day, which was one of those ones where uh, can you work out uh, each one of these digits from these sums? So A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, blah, yep, blah, yep. so so which, which of the uh, including A plus B zero. is seven. Yeah. Well, well no, it, it never has the actual number. So everything is things like A plus C equals, equals D. D. E. Oh, okay. So then you go, hang on a minute. It, there's only two different numbers. Uh, that ever occur as the so it's probably going to be yeah. a five times table that has to be there. But and then I did the second one and it was driving me mad. I was getting so annoyed. And you know why? Because they put the wrong thing at the top and it didn't work out. Really? It turned it out it was three, print. but it can't be three if it was the D plus E oh. equals G. Oh, that's so which good. Which was and and then a but. The, John Otway, the wonderful uh, and and I think it would be fair to say eccentric uh, singer songwriter and two hit wonder, um, he uh, had written some lovely uh, songs, including the Snowflake Effect. And he used to do his daughter's uh, maths and science homework because she wasn't really into it. Like, and then he gets so excited when she treat. came back to find out what mark he'd got. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Well, this is. I mean, a lot of. I mean. The other type of book, because there's the ones people who don't want to do maths but would like an insight into the world. Yeah. And then there are people who go, you know what, I'm sick of just doing Sudoku. I'd like something the next step up. And that's when you start getting into books which do set puzzles and have activities. And so Martin Gardner was kind of the origin of that um, genre. And then that's kind of what the, the book I wrote. I very much wanted to fit into that category. And there there I mean the back catalogue of Gardner is phenomenal in terms of, I mean, often quite dated now, but loads of great puzzles and things people can have a go. And prolific. I mean, not merely on mathematical oh, just, puzzles, but a lot of the sceptic Yeah, the sceptic, uh, um, the Alice in Wonderland um, stuff, absolutely phenomenal. He just wrote and wrote across all different topics. Wow. And it's strange, because I go to, there is a gathering every two years called The Gathering for Gardner in Atlanta, which started when he was alive and he very sadly passed away around 2010. Someone will fact check and email. And they still continue to do it. And I go to that, but it's very, very heavily maths, which I'm not complaining about. And it's very heavily magic. And so it's a lot of magicians and mathematicians. Mm. What a what a mix. And Wow, I, what social gatherings. See, yes, well, yes. I mean, you see a lot of card tricks is what I'm trying to say here. And <laughs> so I'm disappointed that they don't really represent the sceptic side of what he did or some of the literary stuff he did. It, it's very much, the at least the conferences I go to, maybe this is a selection bias, uh, focus <laughs> on that end of his work, whereas he did loads of other incredible stuff. Well, the, his first book, so I was going to say Fads and Fallacies in Science, the first mm. of the sceptic books, uh, is kind of depressing because it writes about Scientology not long after Scientology began Aww. and basically says, this seems to be a, a wonky uh, mythic system, um, but I don't think it's going to last very long. And well, then you go, here we are. Oh, well but done, Louis Theroux. Reading some of his books, you're like, there's, there's a whole thing on Adam and Eve having... A belly button, or mm. an, and apparently I mean, that must have been a huge thing at the time. And now you read it, going, "This can't be serious." Which I guess, you know, in alternate reality, you'd be looking at the Scientology chapter, going, 
no, of course that. No, the, Ad, Adam and Eve and the, why they had navels remains a uh, philosoph- philosophical conundrum in uh, you know kind of religious debate. Well, there you go. About why why would they have belly buttons? Because they yeah. wouldn't require. Did God have a belly button? Are they made in His image? And, yeah. yeah. And why did He have? And if why so, would who he was have he connected one? to? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And did He eat the placenta? I don't know. I just think about all those people arguing for centuries about angels dancing on a pinhead. Pin, yeah. It's like, oh guys, you could have just been. What cooking. a waste of thought. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You could have just, you know, anything. You could have done anything else. I, I don't appreciate this as the thought as a thought exercise. I try to think of it as the unfortunate misfiring of a system I'm glad we have anyway. Because I love the fact that humans waste so much mental energy on so many wonderful, semi-pointless things. Mm. I kind of accept occasionally we're going to, you know, oh yeah, that, that really was a dead end. It turns out that the angels on a pin thing was a massive waste. But it's a symptom of a, of a amazing... You know, the fact that we throw so many, so much resource and time into pointless little niche subjects. Yes. I, I find that reassuring somehow. Yes, that's yeah. beautiful. No, and also but I this think... the idea that failure is important for the advancement of human progress and that massive intellectual waste is really important yeah. too because if you don't do it, you never know. And, but still, they could have asked, answered the question, how ought we to live? Or how should we put up this skirt that we're trying to hem? Not with those pins, you'll crush the angels. <laughs> but it's, uh, I, I think that's it, because at least with Newton, you go some brilliant laws and the alchemy. Yeah. That's <laughs> kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you balance leave it with out. the laws and <laughs> uh, alchemy and, and a bit of a jerk running the mint. But, you know, we'll, we'll focus on these things. Yeah. One of my favourite, the angel facts. And of course, angels are now very much back in now. This is, you know, there's a whole oh. publishing world. That, but there was, and I don't know how true this is. I read it as a fact, but I did not, you know, I haven't checked it enough to say it's a fact. That uh, at the point of the invention of the telescope, this was a terrible moment for the organised church because the idea was that angels, heaven, etc., all existed just, just beyond where we could oh. see. And then you put your te- telescope to the sky and you go, hang no. on a minute. <laughs> Yeah, I guess yeah. These, you're gonna move everything a little bit further out, and that's yeah. But yeah, that's like no. I don't, I don't mean space. No, I mean not a, an uh... imperceptible layer beyond space. Oh, but I've got a better telescope. Oh, no, ah, uh, 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 it's, it's further than that. Oh, it's a nightmare. Keep putting an extra lens in my telescope. You keep moving the goalposts. Someone's moved the spheres back. Oh. Well, it's like when they when Descartes was like. There's definitely a gland in your brain where the soul physically lives. There's a gland in the brain. Everyone's like, cool, cool. And then they started looking. They were like, oh, it just, it just uh, where exactly? And he was like, no, I mean, I mean, more metaphysically, that there's a gland, a metaphysical gland in the pretend brain. That's the uh, Deepak Chopra, when I say quantum leap, I mean quantum leap. Oh, sorry, you're questioning me. When I say quantum leap, I mean a metaphor. Uh, what kind yeah. of metaphor do you mean? A little bit like, okay. It's a quantum metaphor. It's many things. So you, um, in terms of your start in mathematics, where were the? Was it books? Was it puzzles? You know, you were. What, where, what was your access? My access was so my dad uh, was and indeed is an accountant, and so he got me doing maths, puzzles, not puzzles, work maths working out from a very young age. The first emotional opinion or anything I can remember forming about mathematics was I preferred addition to subtraction. <laughs> and so even before I was at school, he gave me these workbooks and I used to go through, but I realized you can turn the subtraction into additions just by, you know, mending the sign slightly. And so I used to thoroughly enjoy just that. And I go on and on about, oh, maths is wonderful because it's beautiful and patterns and artistic, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, I was actually quite happy just sitting there adding up numbers and getting the correct totals at the end, which I think, you know, 
a lot of people can enjoy that kind of neat and tidy approach to mathematics. And that, to be honest, having been uh, brainwashed like that at home was quite useful because at school, most kids, as soon as they think they're not good at maths, then they start to fall behind as soon as you miss something or you have one bad teacher and you miss a chunk of stuff. Next year, it's so much harder because you haven't already got the foundation that mm. you should have going into it. And that just it just accumulates. And so very few people are lucky enough to get a straight run through all of their formal education without being knocked off the course of enjoying mathematics. And there's no system to put people really back on that course. I got lucky where because of my parents and the teachers I had, I had a nice run, got to the end, still enjoyed it and went on to do it at university and it was at university up until then I was still just quite happy getting my marks back and doing well at school at university was when and this is kind of the point of doing a master degree at university you get into why these things function and the bits we don't know and the puzzles and for me a lot of people got into it much earlier because of the puzzles it was came a lot later for me anyway I started playing with it at that level why did you do it, Josie? Well, it was, so I think it's brilliant. Well, it was like what you were saying, where you do Sudoku and you think, this isn't good enough. And I just yeah, kept thinking, on. I'm not going to have anything to show for this. And I love thinking logically and I love mucking around. And I I just I just wanted that challenge and the, the fun and the... just, uh, But also, had some exercises to do yeah, that I could yeah. do and think about and use my brain intensely and then mark them and, and get do a thing well at the end and check it and go, I have, I have achieved. Yeah. But it's, I, I think as well, like, I just wanted to learn more about it. I wanted to learn more about the concepts. And it was frustrating because at the very end of the A-level is when they start going, and these things interrelate in this way. And what you're really working on here is this. And it's like, oh, I tiny yeah. understand it. And then they're like, you, and it's over now. Goodbye. How'd you go? Like, oh. But you're done. So oh. I know... Um, friend of mine, Altamandra Harkness, who, you know, she actually, she read a book recently about um, big data, but she uh, did an open university math degree later on when she went, you know, what? I, I thought I, I could have done more on this. I never got to do it. And she kind of got into it through the comedy angle and then went back and did the degree. And I think it's great that I know a few people who later on go, you know, what? I'm going to go back and tick off a maths mm -hmm. education thing off my list. And I also do run a thing called Math Jam which is a much more informal version where people get together in a pub and swap maths things. And so that happens in, I think we're over 30 pubs around the world simultaneously on the second last Tuesday of each month. And we have an annual conference, of course. Wow. And so people just show up and we get academics, we get people in industry, we get uh, you know university students, anyone who's interested in maths and puzzles can come along and and get things to work on. Go, oh, here's an interesting puzzle. Here's a thing I spotted. And it's just a nice kind of social way to keep that part of the brain ticking over that enjoys difficult puzzles and struggling with them. Do you feel like you've got a brain that seeks out puzzles? Like, how do you even come up with things? Is it thinking about the concepts and then trying to kind of work out a way of expressing them? Or is it like thinking of whimsical situations in the world and then thinking about maths behind them? The, so the, you're seeing it like, this is how I do jokes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 that's how do you write thing, this? Isn't it? Yeah. yeah, jokes are puzzles. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. And I think there are more transferable skills between maths, science, engineering and comedy, stand-up writing than a lot of people um, would have. And so, as you know, a lot of stand-ups are closet nerds because it's a very similar... Um, thought process. And then I, the closet blew apart. Yeah, and then, everyone went, I want to become a nerd. Oh, there's money. <laughs> it, seems, it, seems, it seems there's possibilities of there's working money with Dara outside the closet. All right. Off yeah. We, yeah. And so, uh, but for me, the way I 
write mass. The way I come across mass puzzles, I collect interesting things that I stumble across. Mm. Of the, because very rarely do you get to contribute something genuinely new in in maths or in puzzles, because so much. But it's not. I mean, not everything's been found, but so much has been done. So a lot of it is collecting old puzzles of curious things that people have done before and then working some more on them or re-exploring them. Occasionally you'll spot something new and go, oh, that's interesting, and then you'll play around with it a bit and something will come out of it. Most of the time it's a dead end. It's it's a balance between trying out genuinely new things which are probably going to go nowhere and playing with older puzzles and rediscovering stuff for yourself, which is more likely to be rewarding, but you're not going to end up anywhere as exciting. That's how. Yeah. It's like, let's go for a long, aimless walk with these things, as opposed to, you won the prize, you found the yeah. gold. Well, most of the solutions are, that's the thing, isn't it? There's not, there's not an end. When you get to an answer, then very often that's going to go somewhere else. So the moment you just go, well, there's not going to be a grand... And as Matt lay dying, he went, <laughs> then the solution is... And everyone applauded and went, thank God my life was complete. Yes, of course. But this is why I always say a, a mass puzzle isn't finished when you find the answer a mass puzzle is finished when you generalize that to other situations and work out why that is the answer are there other answers and until you've abstracted your solution to in other directions then you haven't really finished the puzzle just getting the answer is the first step and then i mean depends some people get the answer tick i'm done on to the next one yeah, but it's um, specifics the generals yeah yeah that's that's the like real delight in mathematics about Steve and his ladder anymore <laughs> Yeah, that's to say, this is not... It, what I like is, as you were saying, at the end of A-level, suddenly they go, oh, and by the way, that thing you were doing over here is the same as that thing you were doing over there, but in different, you know, uh, camouflage differently. And suddenly you get this tiny brief glimpse of this connection or something or, or some structure beyond what you understand that links these things together. Mm. And that continues through your entire mathematical career. That's the whole point of maths. You suddenly go, oh, wait, there's... The same thing has suddenly appeared here and appeared over there. And so deep down somewhere, there must be some connection between them. But we don't know what it is. But there's always something new to be to be looking at. It's like going to the Sagrada Familia and they've got a little exhibition about how he designed certain parts and then realising that he got the shapes from uh, patterns in nature and use the same maths from those to make your stuff and then you're like oh god did you see the well, sorry can I just what is that I don't know what this is you're talking about so if you go to Sagrada, Sagrada Familia which is the Barcelona. cathedral that Gaudi des, uh, designed in Barcelona that's still under construction and it's so beautiful but they've got an exhibition about kind of certain aspects of the design and what they then do is show you that he looked at the structure of leaves and the structure of shells and the structure of natural patterns and then replicate that in his design and architecturally it all works because it pardon me it follows the same I'm so sorry have you had four lunches from Pret-a-Manger again <laughs> I've had two had there's two. a reason I said that by the way just in case if you don't know why I said that go and see Josie's show it's excellent I saw it last night thank you it's on tour all through the spring yeah and you'll find out why I mentioned the four lunches <laughs> But, um, yeah, that's basically, uh, I, I got this d delicious feeling when I was looking at it, like, oh, I don't understand why these things work and why they exist, but look at them that's all. It, yeah. Did they have the string model with the mirror? 
because he designed a lot of it using um, catenaries, which are hanging pieces of string. Oh! And they built a model out of the hanging bits of string, and they've put a mirror underneath yes. it, so you see it the right way up in the mirror. Yes! It's amazing, isn't it? That's it's astonishing! Like the, yeah. Like his... Yeah, yeah. And it's... It, yeah. It's I, was there, I was there maybe a decade ago. When but it was yeah, they've, they've the got a big exhibition. And, oh, fantastic. Because that was like in a basement somewhere. And I was like, this is, this is absolutely incredible. I've, maybe it is in a basement. I feel like it's light and airy in my memory, but that might be just because it was pleasant. It's the epiphany that was occurring at the yeah. time. Yeah. Your it's, look it's... of shock worried me. Because when you said the thing about it, you look down as if to go, oh, that was the day I broke my laces. And I took yeah. a piece of string and everyone looked cross and I never worked out why. <laughs> No, I was trying to remember it. But what yeah. I love about that is a lot of the front, uh, in terms of the, I mean, the mass, the architecture is amazing, but the front of it is very 70s. In, <laughs> you can tell when they were putting different bits together. There's proper 70s statues at the front. And there is a mathematical magic square hidden on the front of the cathedral. Hang on, what? There, so hmm. there is a four by four grid of 16 numbers where all the columns, rows and diagonals add up to 33. How old? Whenever Jesus's age when he was crucified, 30, thirty-three. Yeah. So they add up to thirty-three in every possible direction. And so what I love about that is proper numbers and maths slapped on the front of a cathedral. Because normally, because obviously maths is everywhere, through. But the maths is kind of hidden, or people, some people spot it. Whereas this, the cathedral's just got numbers on the front. I love that. Also, it's so macabre to be like. It all adds up to your death, mate. Well, yeah, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. You can Generally, buy it as a they are macabre, though, aren't they? I mean, as you know, I think Lenny Bruce and various others talked about. You know, the idea of having this, you know, and every time you go into one of those, and there at the end is There's a man nails guy. through his hand. It, it's it's a strange it's thing, harsh, you know. Yeah. I like focusing on like Jesus being a friend to the children. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like the bit where he's friendly to animals and, uh, what's it, home and hunts, light of the world. It's quite a nice image of Jesus, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. It's got a lot more jesus seed now, hasn't it? I'm yeah. into it. That's what yeah. maths leads to. I was maths talking. leads does, to yes. a final Unavoidably. godly solution. <laughs> well, it doesn't. It doesn't to me, for me. Although I was saying the other day to a friend of mine, they were like, you're not religious, are you? And I was like, I wasn't. I'm like, I'm not. But I do love the teachings of Jesus. And I do aspire to read the Bible more often. And I do like the idea of being an atheist Quaker. And then I was like, I'm still an atheist. It still counts. But um, I was thinking about how when you think about patterns in nature and then you think about how people use those patterns and don't even realise they're using those patterns, I don't believe that whole watchmaker argument for the existence of God, but it does give me the most wonderful thrill of like, oh, things are interconnected. Oh, we're all on this earth, aren't we? Like, See, I get... I get not yelled at, but told off for my woeful lack of knowledge about philosophy. But there is something inherent about our universe, which is maths-based at some fundamental level. And whenever you try, or maybe at least our understanding and the way we we can write down the way our universe works always comes back to mathematics. And obviously, sometimes like some really ridiculously abstract mathematics. There's a thing in maths called the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics, which there are two famous essays were written with the same title, one early 20th century, one mid a guy called um, Hamming, wrote, who did some early computer work on error correcting codes. Amazing. He wrote the whole thing, basically redoing this essay about the reasonable effectiveness of mathematics, where maths, in theory, can be completely abstract. We start with a few notions of numbers and shapes and a couple of the things you've got to assume. And then the rest of it, you can derive through pure abstract thought. 
But no matter how strange some of those results we get from abstract thinking, they still apply to and describe the reality around us. And there's no reason why they should. And and that's why it's just it's unreal. It's, it's not fair that maths is this. You like why? I mean, there are so many subjects where you do just pure thought experiments. And suddenly, if it's a mathematical, it applies to the real world. And there's there's some I think it's amazing, but a little bit of creepiness behind it. No, I think it's amazing. But I also think if you just say maths is how the world works in the way that physics is how the world works, then it just makes perfect sense. It's like, well, of course, all these patterns are in nature because maths is how the world yeah. works. So for physics, the way physics grows is, I mean, physics is physics is really expensive and difficult to do because you've got to come up with a theory and you've got to do an experiment and you test and you do observations. and ugh. Whereas maths, you're like, oh, I fancy some more maths. And you just think hard and boom, new maths. And you don't have to do anything outside of that. And so, but what, what I find amazing is, you know, at no point do you stop and do an experiment. At no point do you double check reality. You just, you go, okay, guys, what's that? Okay, uh, numbers of accounting and there are straight lines and circles. Excellent. I'm going to go lock myself in this room. And just through deriving things from a few simple starting points, you end up in these really complicated results. And you go, well, I'm so far from where I started and I haven't double checked with reality at all. These obscure things I've found can't possibly still relate. And then you walk out and physicists are like, oh, oh, imaginary numbers or matrices or higher dimensions. Oh, that's wonderful abstract math. And it turns out that explains wow. our, our new theories that, that we were working on. What about that point where it does, for some people, become such a, a belief system in numbers I think of where in, in a fictional world I think of something like Darren Aronofsky's first film Pi where the, the the obsessional search then ultimately becomes the sole meaning of existence I think of you know Logic Comics that wonderful uh, cartoon book uh, about Bertrand Russell and the you know for Bertrand Russell his ultimate giving up on, on maths was not merely having to part finance an enormous book that no one read but was very necessary for it to exist um, but also that he hoped that maths would somehow be a com such a complete system for him that there would be uh that it would be a, like here's the closed system of maths and it's complete yeah i think that's fair enough to say isn't it is that the right yeah, way of putting it and, uh... and then he went oh, i think i'll have to move on to philosophy because it's, it's let me down or, or girdle uh we're who, about to say know, that, so so maths... again in logic comics by the way if you haven't read logic comics it's, seen... it's a fantastic uh um, story of Bertrand Russell and a lot of other uh, late 19th and early 20th century kind of mathematicians come in and come out of that story. But I have seen the film Pi, so I don't, I don't feel as uncultured as I thought this podcast might make me. And so uh, the thing is, maths is not... Because everyone goes, oh, maths, the, the answers are at the back of the book, there's a right and wrong answer, and if only we had enough data or we understood enough things, this could explain everything this this could be the complete system all the logic of the universe around us but sadly maths is not that neat and tidy uh godel is just as just basically broke broke everything for everyone where in maths there are for any system of assumptions and maths you start with there are always going to be statements you can't prove or disprove uh within that system there's always going to be something your system can't tell you if it's correct or not and there's never going to be a limit to that. And you're never going to get a nice, consistent, neat set of mathematical rules that do everything. And that was a big change in in mathematics when it went from this kind of we can understand everything. And with physics and maths, we can predict the future to obviously in physics, you know, quantum and everything ruined that. And in maths, the the um, the fact that 
it's not going to nothing. There's never going to be a nice complete system. Broke it from the mathematical side as well. Can you tell me the story of what happened and who did that? And I'm sorry not to know. So you don't have to be sorry not to know. Well, thank you. No, no, no. So I did a pie chart on how much I know. It's got smaller. (laughs) So there was a really interesting burst of mathematics in the earliest 20th century. It's been a little while since I've read up on this, so I'm going to be a little bit vague. Okay, that's good. Where they were like, right, how can we codify, how do we write down how we do and understand mathematics? And actually, Alan Turing was heavily involved in some of this. And one of the reasons... I think Alan Turing was like, oh, he did some amazing computing things and maths, and he should be better celebrated for his work in the Second World War. Actually... The fact that if he had just done his um, paper on uncomputable numbers and something called the stopping problem, which is what he did before he went to the rest of it, that's when he came up with the notion of a computer in the universal Turing machine. That would have been enough for him to be this amazing figure in mathematics. The fact that he went on to do all this stuff, building and using computers and code breaking and everything else he did afterwards, it's just icing on the cake. From but They were looking at how can you formally write down how you go about doing maths and how can you then show what that can and can't do. Mm. So even before computers, could you build a machine which you can put in any um, question in mathematics and there's an algorithmic way to churn out the answer to say if it's true or not. And that question became actually, if you set a machine running on a problem, do you know if it will ever eventually stop working on it or will it just work forever? And that was, was the stopping problem. And so if there was a machine which is always going to stop and give you an answer, then there's a nice decidability to mathematics. And Turing was able to show that that's not true. For any set of rules you set up and have some systematic way of answering them, if you put a certain set of conditions, he came up with a particular way of arranging them, into a machine, it's not gonna, it's never going to stop. And to do it, he did some phenomenal stuff, which is still the basis of computer science. So add answer quite a, f- a philosophical question. He did some of the, what became the basis of computer science to this day, wow. which is incredible. The, the stepping stone to get into it unexpectedly is some early arguments about the different types of infinity and some similar arguments for how big and small different infinities can be, which is a whole separate um, conversation was that similar arguments were then applied so instead of applying it to types of numbers and how many there could be it was applied to um, programs and how many programs could run and in which situation would they stop running and one of the things that Turing did that we still see to this day was he realized that everything is numbers data is numbers the program that runs on your computer is a number and in fact one of his clever things was taking the number that was the program and feeding it back into the same machine as its input and showing what would happen it's all very hand wavy uh and uh this is one of the i'm not deliberately trying to plug my book (laughs) this is these exact conversations are one of the reasons why i wrote the book because stuff like this i've never including just then given a satisfactory answer when someone has asked me about these things and even doing stuff on stage or in talks or lectures i've never found uh, doing videos online anything i've never had satisfactory ways to explain some of these things but with a a book i mean in terms of long form you can spend chapters and chapters and tens of thousands of words just setting up concepts and ideas 
and all the background bits and pieces to then nail a couple of these concepts well. And so that mm. was why I went through the, the ordeal of writing a book is I went, right, I'm going to explain incompleteness theorems and stopping problems and infinities. And I can do it because I got a hundred thousand word run up to get everything else in position that people can go, oh yeah, having, having, you know, read all of this, then, then I can actually get an insight. Cause even I, I'd have to go back and reread the book. Cause you know, I, I don't do it for six months and it's, it, I've, I've lost that idea. The book, by the way, because we haven't mentioned the name, is Things to Make and Do in the Fourth Dimension. Well, thank you very much. Uh, which we have invaded. Uh, well, actually, you doing your talking book version. And, uh, and when I came in here explaining the difficulty of going, now, here's a diagram that I'm explaining through words. There's, well, right, get a ruler out. Oh, okay, God. You can There's have a circle. There's a have cer- you got some string? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was adamant that I was going to do my own voice for the audio version of the book, which is fair enough, right? Because yeah. I very much wrote it as me, so I was like, it'd be a bit weird to get someone... Although friends of mine... I don't know if you don't... Did you do an audio version of your book? No, no. It? No. So Think uh, of doing one of the dead funny uh, ones if we can. Oh, that would be nice. The, uh, everyone in. The and... idea of creeping everyone out uh, with the really horrible skin. Love that. I'd love you to do your ghost story. Thank you. Yeah, Josie did a fantastic, uh, rather lovely. It's rather lovely, actually. He's a kind friend. He's a kind friend. No, it's a a rather lovely ghost story, and that's in Dead Funny Uncle, which is uh, currently available in uh, some shops, including the British Library shop. The British Library? Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, just quickly on a little diversion, Mm -hmm. because I gave you a little postcard of Jean Rhys, the British Library at the moment, in their their main kind of always exhibition art of the book and all that kind of stuff, uh, has a lovely uh, couple of windows worth of of Jean Rhys and about Al Al. Alvarez, uh, just because those of you who are regular listeners will know that uh, Jean Reese has come up quite often in this from Wide Sagasso Sea onwards and backwards and all over the shop. And there's some really interesting little bits of letters. Now, Al Alvarez, who wrote a very interesting book about suicide, amongst other things. I've read it. It's Savage great. God. Savage God's fantastic. I've read, do you know, to continue on this diversion, Al Alvarez was like the coolest guy in terms of what he was interested in and when he was interested in it like the people that he championed and promoted were you know he was really ahead of the game i think in terms of like you know when he loved the work of sylvia plath when you know before the cult of sylvia plath began and like loving jim yeah and um also i he loved a cold water swim loves a cold water swim and wrote a really sweet journal of um uh, sort of between kind of 1996 and 2006, when he between was between the age of about 70 and about 80, of his daily swims through spring, summer, autumn and winter in the ponds. And it's all, all about becoming more physically frail and about how freeing the water is. And it's fascinating. Really Thank heavens that in the last two minutes, because a lot of people who are playing uh, Book Shambles Bingo at home have gone, there's just, I'm not going to get a line. Cold water swim, Jean Reese. we're getting there, we're getting there. <laughs> the, uh, um, so I was going to ask you as well, which is, uh, sorry, we'll come back to the, the oh. other thing, which is, um, because we're obviously, one of the things is, by the way, start doing your maths degree in a couple of months, because we'll be with Matt for three weeks, because we're doing the, out in we Australia. We can do all and, your first year assignments. Zealand. Yeah. That's such um, a good idea. <laughs> we, we, we get, yeah, I think we, that, that's what you have to, that's what I do with Brian Cox on tour all the time, I go, Brian, Brian, just one quick question about Hilbert's Hotel. Um, but the, the the strange quark, Brian. Um, 
But this, uh, in terms of doing, because we, we started working together probably eight years ago or maybe even more, I don't know. It's been quite a while that we've yeah. been do, doing stuff. I mean, certainly before this decade. Definitely 2009 uh, or 10? Probably, two, oh, I'd say 2009, maybe even 2000. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, um, we're all going out to do this Cosmic Shambles uh, thing in Australia and New Zealand in uh, in March and April. It's going to be um, a fantastic show with all kinds of special guests. Um, watching you... Yeah, you know, for the first time I saw you, you were very good at taking a narrative, taking a story and turning it into where you take a, a real life event and turn it into also something that helps you understand a mathematical or statistical idea. But I presume that before I saw this fully formed uh, explainer of maths, uh, there were some fuck ups as well. So what is I'm just interested as we have no blooper reel, save for your memory. Uh, what? How difficult did you find it when you started trying to explain mathematics for a broad audience? Because the kind of audience that, that we play to, whether it's, you know, Cosmic Shambles thing or whether it's, you know, the, the Nine Lessons of Carols, any of those things, they're a broad audience. They're not yeah. necessarily science-y, maths-y, whatever. I, well, I came straight out of high school, secondary school, maths teaching. So that was my background at showing up. So I, I was a real teacher for probably four years Cumulative. I did one year in Australia after I graduated and then three years in London. And that you shop every day and you've got three or four classes of kids who the vast majority don't want to be there. And you've got to get them engaged and you've got to um, get them excited and wanting to learn the topic. And so when I went in, I started doing stand-up 2009. And I initially had an overlap where I was still teaching and doing stand up and I just started doing gigs around the country once you hit the kind of you know the uh, either comparing or open spot on the circuit and they found this surprising number of transferable skills and so teaching is is it's not the jokes or anything about being entertaining but it's the ability to stand in front of an audience and talk to them while monitoring what they're doing oh yeah and just it just takes sheer stage time or classroom time to be able to stand there and know what you want to say and keep saying it while separately just monitoring everyone in the room. And if you're a teacher going into stand-up, you've already got just those hours under your belt. Mm. And so I... But then I found that I was accident doing quite nerdy stuff with audiences. And I think that's where I had... I think my fuck-ups all happened on the circuit with audiences who <clears throat> either loved me anyway or or weren't going to enjoy what I was doing. And so when we're doing it with completely cold audiences who have no idea who I am or why I'm there, or why this guy's just started talking about maths, that is where I think I, I started to hone how can I keep people's attention while still talking about this. And it doesn't always work. I still There are still some things, like I said, where I want to talk about on stage and I cannot crack it. I cannot find a way. There's a thing in mass called Graham's number, which <laughs> is commonly referred to as the, the largest number ever used in a... Um, Mathematical proof, like where you laughed, like that was just like a set up punchline. Like, yeah, oh no, it's an actual thing. No, that it's I funny. It's like Graham's number. What's yeah, Graham's yeah. number? Oh, seven nine five six. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Graham did a lot of work with uh, Edish, just right. to uh, close that loop. Nice. And I, this number is amazing, and it's mind-bogglingly big. And I've tried a couple times. I put it in one show I did, and another one, and it never, never worked. I just to this day couldn't get away. It, I've done it in videos online. 
but that's a different or that's a very self-selecting audience i could not get it to work um with a live crowd of people but I think that's true of ideas generally. It's not merely maths. I mean, I'm sure that in your new show, Joseph, there were certain political things you might want to deal with. I certainly find scientific ideas partly because I'm hampered by a lack of understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it is, there are certain things you go, why? And you find it in your notebook and you go, wow, I've been making a note of this for 11 years. Oh, and it yes, always makes never. the first draft version. And then as the audience reject it, I go, oh, roll yeah. over. For that particular idea about the man who measured the size of the world, yes, Eratosthenes. it's frustrating. But but that's where you have to appreciate, like, because I always think about like performance and stand up as being really limitless, and and about stand up as being a really fluid genre. And but I'm starting to sort of feel like I understand what it is and what it isn't, and what it can be and what it's difficult for it to be. And I think you know, if it's like you were saying with writing a book about and that giving you the scope, I think what you might have to do with some ideas is think, right, I'll have to write an entire stand-up show about this one complicated idea. And that's the only way I'm going to do it. The only way to get the run-up to... Because, like, physically, I mean, if you write out a stand-up show, it's only 6,000 words, you know? Or 30 words if you're Stuart Lee. (laughs) (laughs) Just a joke, because he's very slow in his delivery. Um, But, um, so it's only, really, a chapter from a book. You know, when you think about it like that, it's like, well, of course... I'm not able to convey this really complicated thing quickly enough. Yeah, that's why I think I've worked to be adequately good at enough different types of communication because each one ticks a certain... Because I love doing stand-up in its own right, but I am better a better mass speaker than stand-up and I love the fact I can do mass and audiences... I mean, as long as an audience is entertained, they'll they'll pay attention, right? And often mm. you can think them that you can think they're finding it funny when actually they're just finding it interesting. Yes, right. And so Which often is good I too. Think, it's great. Yeah, no, don't well, get that me wrong. Was definitely happening in your show last night, and I'll tell you why. You. Because I no no, there were points where you you and it's not written to have laughs. It's written for you to express an idea. Oh, at the end. Um, yeah, and there's little bits in between where there's there's you know this is, uh, but at no point, and this was getting quite late. This was ten thirty on a Monday night. No one was going. <coughs> Oh yes, I went to that. The, I went to see Lisa Dwan, who uh, uh, I had to interview on my own for for this. Uh, who is a, a few episodes back talking about Nose Knife, uh, the the Beckett play that would have finished now at the Old Vic, uh, and it was amazing. Every time it went into blackout and there was a little bit of of, of quiet, the whole audience went, <coughs> 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 "Get the cough out! Get the cough out as much as possible!" <coughs> <coughs> I don't want to shame myself with the Beckett <coughs> silence. And but there was absolutely, and that I, I, I think you. shows that the people were and I, I think it's interesting watching your show last night as well which reminds me of, of a, a similar technique we have though I consider you to be the superior comedian but the uh, I think it is and the uh, is um, idea 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 hello here's a funny <laughs> voice yeah, yeah. and I do that all the time quick do a funny voice it's like I've been serious quick let me mm. undermine it I've undermined it come back mm. I'm going to talk I've... about Chopin hell but I'm going to give him a crazy voice <laughs> I That's where I, if I gave Graham a funny voice, maybe yeah. I could do that. Yeah. Here's my num- <laughs> here's my number, ladies. Oh, you've not got a pad long enough to write it down. <laughs> yeah. See, there you are. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about that because I think for me, what's what's I love and what I sometimes find frustrating about stand up is that you can you can actually have quite a superficial uh, recounting or understanding of something. You know, sometimes I've, in my life I've read whole books for research for something and then you end up writing a joke 
which is mainly just a silly little tangent, you know. And how do you work with that where, you know, your comedian instinct and your uh, maths communicator instinct might actually be kind of in competition? Yeah, I tend to side with the maths communicator. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've had that when you're writing with other people or when you've got a... So we did a, a, do a thing called Festival of Spoken Nerd. Yeah. And uh, we did a series for Radio 4. And it was through the comedy unit, not the science unit. And I'm used to working with science producers. Right. And so we had an amazing um, comedy producer and would get notes back going, oh, this would be funnier like this. And I'd have to go, yes, but it would no longer make the entire routine technically correct <laughs> as well as it like. And, and here's why. And there's well, I, whenever... I'm writing anything in the back of my mind is my super nerdy fans who who know the subject probably better than me, who will be going through making sure everything I do is still logically consistent within the maths or the science. And I take it as a great bit of personal pride that I will twist even just a particular word over another, even if it's not, even like if moving the funny bit to the end of the sentence would be preferable, I go, well, no, I can't do that because it breaks a, a particular bit of logic that most people aren't going to spot, and so I will, I will err with them, my inner inner mass nerd. I think every time. Well, if you just add a little, just have some stings instead. Say that, but then you go air dish number, <laughs> bill, bill, <laughs> and then that's fine. Then get then you know, then do, do back, the maths. Yeah. But that's definitely a technique for writing. Like I, I feel like I've had to really, really work on developing techniques for trying to speak about more serious things on stage. And one of them is distract. One of them is a uh, quick disclaimer at the end in a silly voice. One of yep. them is undermine, 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 <laughs> no matter what you're saying. But it's, it, it is interesting to me and I think it's good that like you know you don't have to say to yourself no no I'm this genre and that's all I'm doing you know it's good that you're allowed to say well what I want to do is have this purpose of communication and that supersedes getting little gaggy laughs for no reason well that we've run out of time already I know you had oh, one more fun. thing to say though Matt because would you like is there no, a, no, I, there, there's no mathematical I don't think kind there's of, anything we didn't wrap up I think we covered, all the maths. we covered all the maths uh, if you don't think we've covered all the maths and uh, you are more uh, southern hemisphere based than northern hemisphere based uh, then uh, we're uh, the three of us and other people as well who will be announced we'll be uh, touring uh, where are we doing we're doing Sydney Melbourne uh, Perth. Wellington Perth. Auckland, we're doing Perth and then finishing in Perth yeah, we will be is, performing in the lecture theatre where I had my first year computer science lectures oh that's oh, nice place of proustian number I, memory we should recreate them i'm so so tempted to anyway yeah so that'd be kind of fun oh yeah and my audiobook which and your, your audiobook which, which you're halfway through frantically recording will be out at some point um a couple of things i was going to mention things that are really good which was one is uh i just went to see the edward ardizoni uh exhibition you remember edward ardizoni uh, more information, please. He was uh, a, a uh, illustrator and writer who did the the Tim Goes to Sea books, uh, popular children's books, and it's at the House of Illustration, and it is is wonderful because he was just you would recognise his work. He did mm. many book covers. He did uh, he did the original Stig of the Dump book cover. Oh wow! He okay. also did a beautiful book called The Local, which is these wonderful uh, sketches and little stories of uh, basically different local pubs in London in the uh, in the nineteen forties, mm. and uh, the cover of and just I was looking I was going he'd have done really good he, he, this would work very well with a Patrick Hamilton novel turn round of course he did the cover for a Patrick Hamilton novel didn't he and L'Assemoir my favourite Zola oh 
aka wrong. the boozer, What's aka the tram shop. I've, I've only read uh, Therese Rakan, which oh, oh. that was all right, and La Bête Humaine, the Beast in Man, loved it. I probably pronounced it wrong, sorry. Um, Beast in Man, love it. Trains. Do you like trains? Yes, read The Beast in Man. Thank you, will do. It is I... brilliant and it's really gripping. I remember not mm. being able to find the copy when I was only one chapter left. And oh. I was like, oh, oh. It is gripping. It's brilliant. I um, really recommend, finally, I read the first collection of The Wicked and the Divine, the Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey comic about... Uh, superheroes and music. Well, they're not superheroes. They're gods. They're demigods. And uh, they're gods. Why am I saying demigods? They're gods. Uh, uh, coming down as young people. And um, what what I loved about it as well was I thought if I was reading this as a fourteen year old girl, it would be the best and coolest thing that I'd ever read in my life. And I felt genuinely frustrated that I didn't have it earlier in my life. Not that it suits better younger people. It doesn't. I love it. But I just think about how I was crying out for something like that. When I was younger, so, there's a um, Stuart Lee's written the uh, introduction to uh, two books, but I'm going to pronounce this name wrongly. But it's basically it, it looks like Ithel Colquhoun, C O L Q U O U N, I think, and if uh, I thought uh, Ithel, the Living Stones, which is all about going uh, around Cornwall 1950s. She was a surrealist artist, and I've only just started reading the book. It's just been uh, brought out again by Peter Owen, and. Uh, you know when someone goes, I envy you, I envy you for the fact that this is your entry into the world, this is your first time, that's basically what Stuart writes in his introduction, so that is mm. very interesting. And a Michael Foreman exhibition, which might still be on at the Harris Museum in Preston. Beautiful bits oh, of nice. war, war boy, war game. And your recommendations? Oh, goodness. So I've been frantically travelling around. I The last... I look, because I as I was running out of the house, I was like, ah, books, I've got to bring books. And so I went, like, what have I read recently? But the thing is, I don't categorize my books in any systematic way they just get put on the nearest shelf with yeah. an empty spot when i finish them and so i read um mark haddon who did um the curious, curious incident, incident and then did spot a bother had a collection of short stories out called the pier falls which i bought on a whim going oh, i've got a few, i've got a few flights to sit through and short stories are good for that and it was absolutely fantastic if you want a uh, exploration of the finite nature of life uh, it was. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was really, really good. So I'd recommend the Pier. The Pier Falls was great fun. And then this is like your the ones with gods and demigods or various semi-sized gods. I read a book, a much more I think a very easy reading one by a guy called Austin Grossman. I think someone will fact check. Called Soon I Will Be Invincible. He's a U.S. author who was a consultant on video games. Ha. And so I haven't read Ready Player One, which everyone keeps going on about. See, my ex-boyfriend and I, when we were on holiday, he read it and he hated it so viscerally. Really? And he wouldn't stop reading it. I was like, love. Stop reading it. <laughs> stop. We've got I, other books. I have a finisher completer. I can't walk away from it. Yeah. I find it hard not to keep reading a book, but what happens is I lose energy, so it just never gets it finished, just, but yeah, it hangs it, over yeah, my head. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But he sat and he read the whole thing, and every five minutes he'd be like, this is so bad. What got, I hate what, this what so him? much. Really? Because, I mean... and No spoilers. I, I haven't read it, so don't... He saw it as just very uh, self-conscious and a bit kind of arch, I think. Yeah, kind of too, too, too smug. A little, but I don't want to sound rude. Who, you know, if anyone loves it, I'm sure it's good. But my okay, filter that was, of it that is was like the, his response. Yeah, so I am um, soon. I'll be invincible. I very much enjoyed in terms of how difficult it is to put a video game uh, like environment 
into a novel. I thought that was great. And I've just started reading his next book he wrote called You, which, again, I've lost. And so I'm like three chapters in, i got to find it and finish reading it. But it's, again, it's a video game themed and goes into a surprising idea on the programming, which is not what everyone looks for in a piece ha! of fiction. But uh, people are like, heaven. I was like, this is great. This is, this is for me. Right. And so uh, very much enjoyed that. And uh, not books. I just caught up with Bojack Horseman. If we're allowed TV, yeah, the new series. Are we allowed TV? Well, Never it's funny because Ralph yeah. Little the other week was. Oh, we only about did telly. Oh, yeah, I don't and know we what Ralph really... Little was thinking, eh? No, but it's it's important. Like we we've got to be more holistic about the culture that we explore. Well, that is going to be on video game shambles, and then we're doing art shambles with Noel Fielding. Oh, yes, I want to go see the Gorilla Girls exhibition. We'll do oh, it together. Yes, Let's please. do that. Should we do it together? Yes. Thanks very much. You can do it too. Uh, thank you very much, Matt Parker. Uh, things to make and do in the fourth dimension. Audio book very soon, and uh, like solid kind of papery, wordy book uh, also exists as well, uh, and some kind of program that plays on one of the Kindle systems, or whatever Probably, that kind of thing yeah. is. Thank you very much, Josie Long. You're going to be touring we're going to be going off and doing things uh, uh, together as well. Thank you, and, Mince. What uh, are you going to be doing? I'm just going around with Brian Cox every, every now and again just walking on stage when he's in the middle of doing some science and going, hey, his hair or something, and then walking <laughs> back off again. Um, so uh, thank you very much to everyone who supported this as well, either by listening or recommending it to friends or those of you who are capable to do it financially, uh, either one-off by PayPal or by Patreon. And so now we are going to read out some of the people who've supported us on Patreon and at the end of that, you're going to find out which person this week has won the box of books. Some of the people who've supported us so far are Holly Richards, Zoe Mitchell, Ben Hall, Ian Simpson, Stephen Pusey. Paco Garcia, Mark Granger, Matthew McLeod, Freddie Waller. That's my friend. Um, Sean, don't know which Sean. I have got a friend called Sean, but I doubt it was him. Thanks, Josie. And I'm going to announce the Box of Books winners this week because in editing this episode, we discovered that the bit where Josie announced it, the microphone had a problem, so you couldn't really understand the name, which is kind of pointless. So the winner this week is Lisa Thrower. Lisa, you can get in touch with us by tweeting us at Cosmic Shambles or sending us an email to contact at cosmicshambles.com. If you'd like to know more about the podcasts that we've been doing, which are, in fact, not merely Book Shambles podcasts, but we have many other podcasts, including some science podcasts, then go to, in fact, I say some science podcasts, loads of science podcasts, then go to cosmicshambles.com. And if you are in Australia and New Zealand, kind of normally, or if you're heading out there soon, you can find details about the Cosmic Shambles live show with Robin, Josie, Matt, and also Helen Chersky, Lucy Green, and lots and lots of great local scientists and bands and comedians. And all the dates and tickets for that can be found at CosmicShamblesLive.com. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.